Welcome to the Build the Future podcast. We promote exciting and positive visions of the future from those who are helping build it. Today, we're talking with Ian Roundtree, founder and partner of Cantos VC, a venture fund investing in near-frontier technologies that will change the world. In this conversation, Ian and I cover the changing landscape of venture, financing the future, and bounce around quite a bit between the various facets of the future that are being built right now. Let's jump right in. What's going on in your world? Um, I planned a few investments, and so finalizing those and then kind of switching back into fundraising mode for like the back half of the fund. Cause I closed, I closed some money, made some investment, closed a little more money, made a few more. And now it's like, all right, I got to raise the rest of the fund. So that I'm not just dual tracking forever. How does that work? Is that like a typical or atypical way to do it? Because my understanding is that it's like you raise the fund, they deploy the capital and then you raise the fund, they deploy the capital, but maybe it's not that clean in practice. Historically speaking, it's atypical. It is more common for like, newer funds, emerging managers, smaller funds, you know, like when Sequoia raises money, it's like, you know, one phone call, one close, it's all done. And then they go invest it. But most, most managers have to take, even people are like, you probably are like, oh, there's such an awesome VC, probably still take like the better part of six to 12 months raising what they want. So what does it actually look like? to raise money to like deploy into the future? How do you fund the future, Ian? <laughs> yeah, that's a, good, that's a good question. You just like call up some homies and they're like, hey, go give me some money. And then they're like, here you go, here's some money. Yeah, I'll, I'll speak in general due to SEC regulations can neither confirm nor deny if there's an open Cantos fund, but um, <laughs> I'll speak to the process in general. So, you know, if you're a longstanding fund, you can kind of just snap your fingers and do a close and you've had relationships with the institutional asset managers, be they university endowments, pension funds, large foundations, and they're kind of ready. They're used to giving you money. They trust you. They want to give you more money. And so that takes the first priority of the the institutional asset managers. It's kind of a struggle for new investors because, you know, I talk to friends and I hear this all the time that, They'll go out and pitch LPs and then the LPs will say, oh, well, you know, our existing managers came back faster than we expected or they're raising bigger funds than we expected and we've got to participate in those. So, you know, it's hard for us to add a new manager. We can only add one or two this year. And I get it, right? Because like I have to pass on opportunities to invest in startups all the time that I think are amazing startups because I have limited bandwidth or Cantos has limited capital. And, or maybe I've just made too many investments that quarter and, you know, there are pressures from above to, you know, not be too fast in deployment. And it doesn't mean it's a bad opportunity. It's just, there's exogenous factors. So like, I kind of get it from the LP's perspective, particularly because they're, they're allocating assets, not just across venture, but across every asset class and have to balance those. And that's difficult. And venture has been so wild and technically has expanded due to companies staying private longer that things are in the venture bucket if they're like you know like stripe is in the venture bucket technically for an endowment whereas right. you know typically a hundred billion dollar company would be public and that would be in your public equities portfolio and it wouldn't get called called venture 
but that's so skewing some of these big portfolios toward venture that they're like, Whoa, I got to pump the brakes. Cause like we're overexposed to venture. And there's an interesting report that came out last week or the week before and forgive me, I'm forgetting where it was, but search like endowments or university venture capital. And it was about how a bunch of the endowments are like crazy high percentages of venture capital because of all these huge IPOs and stuff like 40, 50% or they're doing, they're putting up numbers like 50, 60% returns in the past year. It's wild, but venture capital has in a sense been a victim of its own success because now they're like, whoa, like we can't do more venture, can't do a new manager. And what that means is that it's, it's more difficult for younger managers to start their funds or raise capital from those sources at the very least, or for there to be more diversity in venture or to invest in new areas, which is a real shame because we're like, you know, SaaS and FinTech are a hell of a drug. (laughs) And I'm a little concerned that we are currently overdosing on them. So right now, it seems like the the topic of the day is we have these venture funds that are are now operating more like private equity funds where masquerading is venture because venture is supposed to be new, it's like experimental companies, like new ideas, new frontiers. And then private equity is like, okay, like what do we know? What playbook can we run here? What do we know that works? How do we run this over and over again? Just pump like capital into it. It seems like venture capital has become bastardized into this, oh, we're just going to fund a bunch of fintech and SaaS because we know the returns, we know the timelines, we know the playbook. I think like there's a place for that, but it's tricky when it's muddying the waters for all of like VC, right? Yeah. I mean, look, I I got my start in tech at SoFi. I was super early there, as you know, and started investing when I was making angel investments in fintech. And then I was like, oh, well, you know, tech is, is eating the world. It's obviously eating fintech. Let's invest in software for other big industries that matter, like healthcare and logistics and agriculture. And and that was sort of my angel investing and early Cantos one was that sort of thing. And like, there've been some really interesting successes there and it would have been very tempting to keep focusing there. But my interest in continuing to move the world forward, doggedly pursuing the edge of the innovation curve and that near frontier and also wanting to be a little different. You know, I, I, my personality type is very much like, to a fault wants to be different than others, but it also works to, you know, be contrarian and all that in investing so that things aren't, aren't overbought. So I was like, okay, I'm hearing from a lot of investors just categorically that they won't invest in hardware and they won't invest in bio. And I used to say that because it was kind of like, oh, what a lot of smart VCs I knew said. And then I was like, well, wait a second. If all of them were categorically saying that they don't invest in these areas, and there's anything interesting in these areas, there might be a lot of opportunity there. And so I started experimenting toward the end of Fund 1 and then with Cantos 2 and 3, which I'm investing out of now. It's been all deep tech, frontier tech. I like to use the word near frontier to emphasize that like we're not investing in basic research. Like These are these do need to be companies in the near term. So I, I say near frontier. But that has been viewed as like an outright new asset class by many institutional investors and just sort of coming around to venture at all, which is shocking because it has like 
60, 70 years of proven fat tail distribution, power law driven returns that like you can look at numbers over a huge backdated portfolio that like it works, but it's still viewed for some reason as sort of exotic. And so they're like, all right, now we understand venture, but to them venture is like SaaS and FinTech and maybe a little consumer social. Right. So they're like, whoa, you're investing in hardware and bio? Like, I don't know about that. But I, I think we, we, I feel like we've had a couple, a couple wins in the past few years. I mean, what was like desktop bio or desktop metal went public? I think that they do a bit more the the machinery and, and like, Astra and Divergent and Ginkgo and not public yet, but but SpaceX and Tesla and let's go back further. Genentech, heck, Moderna isn't all that old. And this is this is the most infuriating part is because like the reason Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley is because during the space race and after Vannevar Bush convinced the administration to, to start the precursor to DARPA, there were these deeply technical research projects often geared toward the military, but with the idea that investing in military technologies pays dividends to the general populace. And that this was a thing that a democratic capitalist society needed to invest government dollars in. And then things kind of got to the point where, where there were some business spinoffs of some of that research. And the early Silicon Valley venture capitalists, who were not the first venture capitalists, like a couple partners from like Venrock or NEA moved to the West Coast and were thought of as crazy, or like, you know, Bill Draper's dad even, yeah, I think yeah. it was the first West Coast firm to DGA. And they were kind of seen as outliers, but they started funding these DARPA projects, which were like literally space tech. Like it, we think of space tech as new and venture capital is like, oh, I don't know about that. And I'm like, our entire industry was originally funded by space tech. It came first. Venture capital is oh, the fascinating. Because it was like all the, the military research work done as part of the space race that then is like, oh, we have all this stuff. How do we continue to fund it? And then how do we commercialize it? And then how do we get the capital to commercialize it? Right. And it's like, oh, now we have VC. Oh, then what do we do next? Oh, semiconductors. Awesome. Right. And then as the story goes, here we are 40 years later. <laughs> totally. If anyone's really interested in that, there's two books that kind of cover different aspects of it. One is Loon Shots by Safi Bacall, which deals with more like Vannevar Bush's background and kind of how he convinced the government to start investing in, in things that became DARPA and a few other stories of innovation. And then the other is a, a VC perspective called VC and American History, I think is the subtitle. And it makes you realize that like investing in hardware and bio is not new to venture capital. When you think about kind of the frontiers of those two spaces, how do you see them playing out? Or like what sort of future do you want to see created as a result of kind of like the investments you're making in in both of those? You know, what is the future of bio that's being built right now? Like, why is that super exciting to you? I was originally interested in technology because I thought it was a way to democratize finance or gain efficiencies in healthcare. Like it was very much like a business finance, like software viewpoint, because I studied political science, wanted to go work at WHO or something, did a stint at a nonprofit in Central America for a year, and then worked in healthcare consulting in like the patient accounts offices, not on the clinical side. And, and I still believe there's like a ton of value to be created there for society. But then you start looking at things where it's like, 
oh, we think we can cure cancer or we could mitigate climate change or in some cases outright reverse it. Or we think we could commercialize space and, you know, have a lunar colony and eventually a Martian colony and that or cure rare genetic illnesses or manipulate the genomes of single-celled organisms to plants to sequester more carbon or provide more renewable lumber or heck, like I've just learned that phytomining is a thing, which is using plants to mine metals from soil that otherwise would be too low density to make sense for, for a mine. Like that stuff is intoxicating. And once you're like, once you realize you can have that level of impact with technology, I honestly think it's at the best, it's ignorance to be completely focused on SaaS and FinTech and consumer social. And at, at worst, outright cowardice to not invest in these things if they have this type of impact potential. It does seem that like when you look at the possibilities of features that could be created, the idea of the optimization or efficiency questions become far less interesting than, oh, what could we do with something new? One of the things that's top of mind for me right now is like the energy question. Matthew Iglesias, I think, had this piece this week on like, America has a, an abundance issue. We're like we, we have like an, an issue with our narrative and energy where we're like trying to make everything way more efficient, where our washers and dryers are, they operate better like today, but they're not actually, you know, clean or close faster. Maybe they take more time. And we're doing this because we have this weird narrative. We're like, oh, we have to conserve energy. Instead, it's like, wait, no, we should, we should flip this. Instead of like, imagine what a world of energy abundance would look like. What could we do? And we're, we really don't have a choice because you know, our computers, our phones, our headphones, everything we're doing is dependent upon our ability to convert energy into like, it's dependent on our ability to convert energy. And so the more, the faster we move to a world where like, we don't actually have to worry about that constraint, the better off we're going to be. And so it's like, let's stop making washer and dryers, you know, 10% more efficient. Let's figure like what we would do if we didn't have to like spend our time optimizing these things. It's interesting to put it that way because embedded in that, the assumption behind that, that makes it functionally true today is that our energy mix is too carbon emitting and of course economic concerns right like it is it is cheaper if you're footing the bill to be more efficient but we get to a point where we're completely renewable or we actually embrace new nuclear technologies which would fairly rapidly solve all of these problems and make energy abundant then the price comes down you don't have to feel bad using more energy. And you're right, it totally flips the script. Would you consider like energy to be like the main constraint? Like if we're going to focus all of our energy on winning like one war or like one battlefield, if we're going to focus our energy, you know, collectively as like Silicon Valley or as people who want to build the future, like obviously, I mean, you invest in lots of different areas, but is it like, it seems like energy or the nuclear question perhaps is the, maybe the bottleneck here in terms of like, you know, making other things more accessible, more affordable. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it's, there's a really interesting book if you want to go down the like history of energy called The Prize by Daniel Jurgen. And I think there was a docuseries that was really somewhere on it. It's a tome, it's like 800 or 900 pages or something, but it kind of tells the history of oil through all these characters and like narratives that were part of it. And he more or less makes the case that like, Oil is the reason the dollar rose to prominence. Like the units of energy were fundamentally more important than like units of 
monetary scarcity. And, you know, this is the whole like petrodollar narrative. And it's it's sort of a convincing case. I you know, I'm not deep enough in it to like have a very strong opinion one way or the other, but like you could see how it could at least be partially true. It's probably changing today with you know the energy mix changing and the and the shale boom effectively making the, the US energy independent, though more carbon emitting. But it would be interesting to think of the implications of like monetary policy and and currencies if energy became completely disjointed from a certain nation state or group of, of nation states. Yeah, based on what, what you're seeing, kind of like you talk to founders all the time, you're kind of keeping a pulse on on these things. What would you say the goal is in the world of energy? And then how do we, based on what you're seeing, like what did it look like the pieces are that are going to get us there? So again, like what sort of world do we want to live in? What does the future look like when it comes to the energy question? And then kind of what's happening right now that's going to get us there. It's important living in our, you know, coastal tech, high society world to remind ourselves of the the realities of most individuals on the planet. And we have a tendency to say the primary importance is stopping climate change or mitigating carbon emissions, becoming renewable. And that is critically important. But for most people, it's just getting what they need affordable enough and they don't have the luxury of thinking in terms of you know green or climate consciousness and they're like i don't know maybe a few hundred million people that think about climate in their day-to-day decisions and that's great and that's growing but you know there's close to eight billion of us at this point and most of those people either aren't going to or don't have the luxury of think of considering climate in their decisions and so the primary importance is creating abundant energy that is affordable enough for people. Secondary to that, and perhaps corollary with new technology, is making it more renewable or less carbon emitting. And that is, you know, what I focus on. Like, which new technologies solve both problems? And technology is this way to solve debates or solve paradoxes or apparent dichotomies where you think, oh, it's it's either cheap energy or it's renewable energy. And technology is a way to say, no, we can have both and move forward, not be stuck in the present. And that's like the fundamental thing that, that draws me to technology investing is, is to hopefully solve those, those debates or paradoxes or, or, you know, belie apparent dichotomies. What are you seeing right now that's kind of helping solve that? Tension. Because like I'm sure there's like you talk to certain founders and there's some stuff that you'd be like, oh, these people work on this thing, not like in the specifics of like, oh, there's this company, that company, but just kind of conceptually, like, oh, there's like these small-scale modular nuclear reactors that are being deployed in Idaho, right? That are in nuclear review commission status right now. Like, yeah, you don't even need to get that exotic. Like, look at the price of solar panels per unit of power over the past 20 years, and it's been like it's followed something close to Moore's law. Like it's incredible how much costs have come down there and and the industry moved from like you know needing subsidies under the clinton administration being hated on by one party and you know seen as completely impractical because it would need so much government subsidy and didn't work economically to now it's just a given that solar is part of the mix because it's in many cases cheaper than than coal or, or natural gas and wind, I don't think it's been as dramatic, but then wind power has gotten a heck of a lot cheaper and more practical. 
And it's not a, not necessarily a climate decision anymore. It just makes economic sense in many cases. The reason that we can't rely entirely on solar and wind is because we live in a dynamic planet and those are necessarily bound to wind currents or cloud coverage or lack thereof and conditions that create black swan events like we saw in Texas this last winter. And those are only going to get more common and they're sort of inevitable, right? Because if you're, if you're using solar and wind, you know, solar spikes during the day and wind is, you know, a little more mercurial, but there could be a case where you have cloud coverage and no wind or ice has covered both the turbines and the solar panels and you're kind of screwed out of luck. Yeah. So then you, you move to spike your natural gas. Sometimes your coal use natural gas is just, it's easier to turn on and off. So it's, it's typically used to solve that baseload problem. And you can refine that a bit with fuel cells. There's a big trend, right? In the in clean tech one of 1.0 to invest in, in fuel cell companies like bloom energy, which are sort of a, a halfway solution. But I've been so focused on nuclear because I'm looking at it and I'm like, wait, we've, we've solved this problem. Like there are new companies that are using technologies that aren't even that new. Initially I was like, well, fusion's new, right? But like there are fission companies that are much cheaper, much smaller, essentially meltdown proof. And in some cases, outright meltdown proof, easier to clean up less radioactive, don't produce as much waste. And I'm like, oh, that's great. These are new technologies that people are inventing. And then I start looking into it and I'm like, oh my gosh, most of these things were invented in the late 60s and 70s. And we just never adopted them. Like that is infuriating to me. It pisses me off too, man. Like, why are we having these like 1960s futuristic conversations? We're like, where's our flying car? Where's our new, like clean, abundant energy? And like, where's our space travel? Like, let's please solve these problems such that we can do all the crazy shit that happens beyond that. Like we can't even imagine right now. I mean, you have blimp cities. Like if you have like energy that, I mean, if you have nuclear energy that can be modularized, like you can fuel planes, you can fuel cars, you can fuel airships, you can fuel like submarines, like boats. boats. We do in the military. Yeah, it's like all this stuff. It's like, and have for a long time, all our aircraft carriers and submarines are, are nuclear powered. Yeah. But <laughs> it's somehow, we're like, yeah, we're we're stuck having these these conversations. It's because it's been there's been this assumption that it's too capital it's too capital intensive, and in some cases it is. Look, like I have some I'm, for all my talk about the near frontier, we have some pretty tight parameters at Cantos around how much capex is going to be required if we're going to invest in the company, what sorts of gross margins they can get to in a certain time frame, and we really have to that because the fund is relatively small. You know, we can lead a pre seed round, maybe co lead a seed round. But if we're investing in something that's going to need a billion dollars, we're reliant on so many other larger, different thinking asset managers that that sort of stretches our even considerable risk-taking ability. If there's something that you know could bring a nuclear reactor to market with $100 million, we have enough companies in our portfolio that have raised those sums of money that it's a little easier to take that bet. But many of the initial fusion projects were, I mean, look at, at the, the the first, right, is Trialpha Energy, you know, it goes by TAE, it's been around since 97 or 98, and has raised, I 
think close to 2 billion at this point, that's not the sort of thing that, you know, Cantos can invest in. And hats off to Venrock and NEA for backing that company. Although I'm sure it's a reason that those firms aren't making more nuclear bets. And the technology is advanced enough that, especially with these small modular reactors or, or in some cases, micro reactors, because small modular reactor is a technical term that you and I might not think that these things are either small nor modular, but you take a, a you know, a startup we're, we're talking to, it's been relatively stealthy, but a company called Radiant Nuclear down in LA, a team out of SpaceX is designing a micro reactor where the entire system would fit into a container. That's what I'm talking about. So that sort, that sort of thing, you know, they could reasonably bring that to market with maybe 50, 60 million dollars and some government grants. And that sort of risk we're totally willing to take. And my hope is that as these projects get smaller and cost comes down and there are more proof points of, of these types of deep tech companies being profitable, that more capital comes in because that has been the constraint. Oh, the capital's been the constraint. Absolutely. Yeah, because if every if every VC is so addicted to software that they're like, oh, we don't invest in hardware, we don't invest in bio, then some of the most important projects in the world aren't going to get funded. funded. Yeah, and then the, any of the founders, the people who do want to go tackle these problems, not feeling like the timing is right, they're like, oh, I'm if I want to get capital, I have to go. Like, it's, it's there's too much friction there to go do it. But if they see, oh. Oh, my friends left SpaceX and they're building a flying car company or they're building a you know fusion company. Oh, this capital. Oh, I think I can do I have ideas for how to do that better. I think they're doing it wrong. So I'm gonna go raise some capital and take another a swing at it differently. Yeah, and you very quickly get to the, I see this all the time, but because there's only like probably less than 10 firms that embrace hardware and bio that are willing to lead a series A or even a big seed round you sort of run down the list and <laughs> if none of them are interested or they've already made investments in the space. So they're kind of conflicted out. Then these companies are often going to, you know, investors that you and I haven't heard of, or, you know, they're talking to in private individuals, family offices, many times foreign investors. I see foreign investors to credit being more willing to back projects like this. I mean, you've seen Mubadala Ventures, an arm of, of uh, Abu Dhabi's investment office, invest in a lot of bio and deep tech. You've seen investors out of Hong Kong and Singapore, sometimes China investing in, in these things where Sandhill Road is, for the most part, timid about it. But again, I've, it feels like that's, that's starting to change is there's more companies being funded, there's more proof points. And I think that the, the appetite for some of these things is also growing because you have like lowercase carb or lower carbon capital where they're like, that we're just going to fund these sorts of projects. And I think they're probably relying on personal funds to kind of backload a lot of the, uh, how much there is. I think they're like something like 30% SACUS money, which is a big, a big percentage, but, but it's not entirely his. But yeah, it took it took one of the most legendary VCs alive to make a boatload of money, retire, and then come back and say, I'm going to be entirely dedicated to climate tech going forward. I mean, that's tremendous respect for 
Saka and like an interview he did with Kevin Rose way back in the day was like the thing that inspired me to quit my consulting job and move to San Francisco. But like, that's not a sustainable model. Like if you, if you're reliant on, on billionaires to completely have a change of heart and switch their focus entirely to this, then that's sort of moving. It's definitely moving us in the right direction, but you know, we got to get like the institutional asset managers to embrace this more. I mean, his first fund is and probably always will be the highest returning fund, venture capital fund of all time on a, on a cash on cash basis of all time. Depending on who you talk to, it's somewhere between you know 100 and 160 x fund. That's crazy. It's wild. Yeah, I mean, granted, it was relatively small, but still. The point is, it's you you need people with a lot of assets to have sort of a paradigm shift. But I, th- I think like maybe the thing to dwell on here is like there is like a, a now an example. Someone has taken a leadership position and said, hey, I'm going to take what I have and I'm going to go deploy it in this sort of way. Then other people, well, now it's someone that others can point to be like, hey, well, like if you care about this, if you're like talking about it, why don't you go do what Saka did? Or to his credit, Vinod Kosla has been doing this for a long time, right? Yeah. Who else would you say is kind of like in that that echelon of like funding these projects, taking kind of like the long-term view of the future and just being like, Hey, I'm just going to fund this stuff regardless of how long it takes. Well, those still investing that have been at it a long time were sort of the first to my knowledge to embrace what's now known as deep tech were Vinod Kozla, Steve Jurvetson, Tim Draper to a certain extent. And then there were a couple partners at bigger funds that were more focused on it at times or in part like John Doerr, through the early 2000s, like if you go back and listen to his interviews, like all he could talk about were clean tech and smart TVs. That like the television was going to replace the computer as the, as the dominant interface. That's fine. <laughs> didn't quite pan out that way, but we got, I mean, I guess we got our TVs in our pockets. He didn't see the, the like mobile, you know, smartphone coming. Do you have a take on kind of what may be coming post smartphone? I have a take and an investment there. So I might be a little biased at this point. Can you talk about it? I'd be curious to hear what you what you think. The company's humane. They've announced funding that they've raised and sort of the ethos of the company. They are not publicly discussing what they're working on yet. But you'll know fairly soon, I think. I hope so. That's that's like the, they've done a good job of like adding some mystique to what they're doing. Now that they had that that launch, what was it, probably a year ago, maybe two years ago? There was a fast company article last year um, saying that. Beth Mead and Brenda started a company and then they announced some funding earlier this year. And you will probably see the product soon. But you're excited about it, obviously. I'm excited. And I've seen the demos and it, you know, it's they're not making stuff up. So none of this magic leap nonsense. <laughs> it's not on your face. I can say that. Amazing. It's part of the reason I was interested in it. I don't think people are going to wear something on their face. We'll slide over that. I, I'm very curious to see what they come up with. Next time we can talk about it in detail. Just to go back to the the bio stuff, like how are you viewing that path of the future? What does the future look like as a result of all the work that's being done in this in bio space right now? So the crazy thing is about bio, and we can probably parse it out between human and non-human bio. Sometimes people say sin bio for the non-human bio stuff. Technically, synthetic biology applies to both, but we can you know use it interchangeably. It's the interesting thing about the life sciences is that due to the regulatory process that is cumbersome and sort of needs to be, there are definitely efficiencies to be had there. And we've seen through COVID that we can move a lot faster when we need to. 
and you sort of have to balance the benefits with the risks and and the normal FDA process is like will tolerate absolutely no risk and I might push back a little bit on that for certain conditions but because that's the way it is today you can sort of look at clinical trials to see what's coming down the pipe and there are clinical trials where we have results that are incredibly promising like people being cured of sickle cell anemia with gene therapy people's ostensibly incurable cancers being sent into remission through immuno-oncology and treatments like CAR-T. And we're just getting to the point that like, okay, now we got to like, now that we know there might be some efficacy there, we got to like do all the tests to make sure that it's safe. There's no off-target effects that, you know, certain people don't react negatively to it. And that process just takes a while to reach full FDA approval. But like, we're not even talking about the future here. Like people are being cured of cancer and genetic diseases today. Obviously there's stuff being done today, but how does this keep evolving? This is the, the curiosity on my part from your perspective. It is inevitable that life, lifespans increase, that quality of life with, for those with chronic conditions improves. And that has societal implications that we're going to have to wrestle with, but like the implications are to save lives and cease suffering is worth any societal cost we need to absorb, right? Whether it's rethinking the social safety net or, you know, extending, you know, pushing back the Medicare eligibility age or whatever it is, I think we're going to have to deal with those, those sorts of things with how Medicare is funded, social security is funded. If people are living, you know, you stop working at, at 65 and start growing in social security then, and people are living until 120. Yeah. <laughs> we might have to think of that, that age, rethink that age. The other interesting implication of, of longevity is like, how does that affect like our relationships? Particularly like when it comes to like having families, right? Because the technology is there for people to have like start families later that will continue to be a trend if people can be healthy, you know, into their forties, into their fifties, and then start having kids at that point. And like that, the shifts on our education system, on our health systems, on, it's so crazy to think about all this stuff. Definitely. It's super exciting too. The world of old is slowly like dissolving and the world of new is being created. Like, what does it look like when we have abundant clean energy and we have, the ability for people to live healthier, longer lives. And when we're curing all disease and we're exploring the galaxy, this is the craziest time to be alive, man. Totally. Here's a funny thought experiment though. What if people lived to be 150 and a large voting block in America fought on the wrong side of the civil war or was part of the establishment that enacted the Jim Crow laws what if they were still voting today? You think that their thoughts would modernize as they got older? Or like many of our old family members, do they have a tendency toward inertia? Would, would our society be as progressive if people lived longer and an increasing percentage of the population was older and older? I don't want to be ageist, but like that's kind of a weird thing to think about. Okay, yes. But this, this assumes that people are not going to continue to learn and develop new skills 
like into the into old age right i don't feel like there's like because we live in a world now where around 30 or 40 people's kind of ideas and beliefs tend to ossify but if we shift into a world where you can't function you can't make it in this world if you are not continually learning new skills such that you know we have like adaptive ai systems teach you like okay cool you do a certain job that job is no longer relevant because the world's moving so quickly now you have to learn a new thing we may hit a point where people are learning and they're like having these different life experiences later in old age. The other thing actually on this is I would argue that the reason that people have those kind of ossified beliefs is because they don't have any new inputs. They don't have any like new experience. Like if we take the civil war example, it's like if you're in the South, you're in the South, you're not meeting a variety of people. You're not kind of your worldview isn't coming up against like barriers that are forcing you to kind of reevaluate and rethink things. And we live in a world today where you can already kind of tap into whatever information streams confirm your existing view. And that that could continue to, to kind of be the case in the future. But I think exposure to new ideas, new backgrounds, and new like different types of people, different perspectives may only just continue to, to grow. Totally. I mean, I, I, I have to be an optimist because, you know, kind of the alternative is nihilism and that wouldn't work well for me, but <laughs> the, I hope, I hope that's true. And it is a reason why, I love the idea of democratizing and extending mobility and making it greener, right? Like if you could travel across the planet in an hour or two, you'd experience other cultures more frequently. If it was cheaper to fly across oceans, then people who've never left their state or country today would be exposed to those other cultures. and. I mean, hey, there have been studies of people who like fly more regularly, have like this more all-encompassing cosmopolitan view of, of the world. I think that's that's absolutely a good thing. I hope we find out a way to keep making it cheaper and to electrify flight. But you know, something like a, a SpaceX rocket or a portfolio company of ours, Venus Aerospace, that are traveling at hypersonic speeds could realistically get you across the planet. And, an hour. Can you expand on that for people who may not be familiar with like what you're talking about? Yeah, so SpaceX did these renderings of what it might look like to like eventually use the Starship as, as a commercial travel solution. And it would take off from a rocket pad or portfolio company, Venus Aerospace in Texas is developing what would effectively be a, a space plane where it would take off from a normal runway. And then at a certain height, it would cut off the jet engines and switch to a rocket engine. So you're basically just using a rocket to like fly suborbital to go as quickly as possible rather than, than flying at 35,000 feet. And then that has implications on you know, commerce and personal travel. So you get around the globe, you go up, Earth spins, you come back down and suddenly you're, you go from being in Texas to being in Tokyo or Bangladesh or Bangkok or something. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm with you on the, the optimism. Like, I think there's enough opportunity. I, it, it may actually just become a challenge of like those creating content and creating media and creating experiences and promoting kind of a diverse set of like worldviews, and then having the space to to discuss the nuance and to you know experience these different things in ways that are way more like tangible or tactile than what we get online. Because if because if we all continue to just live on Twitter or you know consume the headlines from whatever institutions we choose to follow or you know follow by default not necessarily you and i but just like people in general 
we're gonna have very like divisive worldviews. But if we can kind of find new mediums through which we can have these conversations, the nuance becomes a bit more revealing. It's like, oh, things are not as simple as, as I thought they were. Oh, I have to like actually think about this. And then it's no longer an issue of, oh, I just believe this because this is the way it is. It's like, oh, I thought I believed this, but it turns out that may not be the case. Yeah. And it's so easy to look, I I, I maybe this is a contrarian view today, but I think that the internet and social media have been a net positive for society. There are definitely adverse effects that we didn't see coming, or maybe in some cases, certain companies did see coming and didn't do anything about, and we need to fix those. And there are probably better ways of doing it. I would still hold that it is a net positive because it's so democratized access to information, seeing other cultures and education and connecting loved ones in a way that we, was never possible before for all its negative externalities, which again, we need to reconcile with, but there is a lot of room for misinformation and manipulation there that is inherent to the medium that seeing something with your own eyes can never be. Someone described this like we're in the messy middle of the internet. And I, I would agree with you. I, I mean, I guess if we may both be contrary on this, but like the reason you and I are able to have this conversation, the reason we're able to like these companies, the companies that you're funding are able to get funded. And the reason they're able to recruit their teams and to find support is almost a direct result of some of these social media platforms to be like maybe you're, like people's ability to like raise capital. It's like, oh, I can find somebody and have a conversation. I can get pulled into like this arena. I can understand the nuance and like be a part and like actually go make something. Or the whole like Web3 crypto movement. Like There's no way I would be running my own venture firm without an MBA if I didn't have access to all the information on the internet. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, we have to deal with some of the, yeah, the, the consequences and some of the challenges. Like these are just new problems to be solved. Like this is a perfect example of, you know, technology, you know, being deployed and then like our proper response to which is, okay, we built something amazing. Oh, this created a bunch of new problems. Well, let's go fix those new problems. And then those will inevitably create new problems. We'll just have to keep fixing them versus, okay, nope, we're done. You know, we've got our internet, we've got our, you know, coal and gas plants and the future. Now let's just, let's stick with what we've got because we don't know what lies ahead. It's like, no, we need to embrace this problem solution mindset. Yeah, we might have to teach different things. Like the, the purpose of education for a long time has been to expose you to information. Now we are overexposed to information and the primacy of education should probably go toward figuring out how to sort, prioritize, and verify said abundance of, of information and how to make sense of some wild claim or something that you think you're seeing. And to the extent that you can teach empathy and integrity, you know, of course, of prime importance. But, you know, I do think about this sometimes, like take COVID vaccine, you know, hesitancy as an example i've had conversations with people who are hesitant and i you know i understand their background has led them to be hesitant but i'm like hey look you know i don't have a biology degree but i invest in this stuff i spend a lot of time reading about it if there's anything i can kind of help you make sense of it if you have questions happy to address those and like i, I wish i could just show people like the biochemical action under a microscope but then like tie that to what's happening in their body and that's just like 
biology is extremely hard to convey because it necessarily happens at a scale that our brains did not evolve to comprehend. So you could show them anything in a petri dish and be like, okay, well, this is an mRNA and this is what it's doing. You know, it's going between the nucleus and the ribosome and that's kind of how the whole thing works. And they're like, I understand what I'm seeing here, but like, how do I know that's in my body? You know, like kind of tying the micro to the macro is a really difficult task. Um, and I understand why a lot of people who, who haven't had the time or wherewithal to study this stuff enough to connect the dots might be a little hesitant, especially if they're being fed lies from, you know, their favorite, whatever account. Yeah. Cool. Well, where can people find you? Calls to action. Where can founders who may want to talk to you about their, their companies, future they're building, how can they get in touch? My email is ian at cantos.vc. Check out our, our website to see what we're about. Send me or one of my analysts an email. I'm at Ian Roundtree on Twitter without the D. If you're building a company that could change or save the world in hardware or wetware, send us an email. We like to invest as early as possible. If you've already raised money, it might be a little hard for us. If you haven't, we'd love to talk to you. And if you are a VC that's not investing in hardware or bio yet, stop being a coward and experiment. Hell yeah. Ian, this was a blast. Thanks so much, man. Totally can. We'll talk soon. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you want to support the show, please share favorite episode with a friend. If you want to get updates on the events we're hosting, new podcast episodes, and follow along as we build the new World's Fair, you can follow me on Twitter at C-A-M-W-I-E-S-E. Until next time, go build.